Welcome to Geek Sweat. This is part two of our inspirational interview with David Wilkinson. I'm King Dom and I'm joined once again by TJ. Howdy, King Dom. Thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure, TJ. And we are joined once again by David Wilkinson. David Wilkinson is a BAFTA-nominated producer and director known for his documentaries, especially the first film and postcards from the 48%. And he's an absolute goldmine of information on production and all things film. Thank you for joining us once again, David. Thank you for asking me. I, I hope I am a goldmine. It's the thing when you get old is that you just retain a lot of information. And you forget what you know until people like you come and ask you. And then you have unlocked this Pandora's box. A positive Pandora's box. Oh, good, good. It's more like um, a smog's cave of gold trinkets that have been collected over the time sort of thing. So I'm sure there's lots of gems there that you probably cast to the side that you, you forgot a long time ago, but they're still very valuable to us. You do. It's like a sort of computer, the brain, really, and somebody, you've just um, tapped in the right words. And I suddenly found myself talking about, in, in part one, things that I had totally forgotten about. Okay. Well, thanks for taking us back down memory lane to revisit some of your signposts and key moments of your film career. So, David, do you remember where and when you were when it was announced that you'd been nominated for a BAFTA for your first production to The Lighthouse? Uh, I honestly don't. I mean, it was uh, it, it was funny because it was the, the first film that I sort of obviously made as a producer. But... I have to tell you a story, and it's made me very cynical about awards. And Keith Williams, who was the head of BBC uh, Plays, which handled all single dramas, he said to me, and I was only 26 at the time, so, so very young, and he said, why don't you lobby for the BAFTAs? And I went, what do you mean lobby for the BAFTAs? I sort of vaguely knew what the BAFTAs were. They weren't like they are today. And he said, well, what you do is you remind people, because it was, it was pre-having video or DVD, so you had to remind people what they were. Now, uh, these days, you just send people a link or still a DVD to say, here's my production. Um, so he said, why don't you just go round the BBC and just before it, 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 you know, the, the voting takes place? And the television centre was a circular building and there were five floors, I think it was five. And so I just went round knocking on all the doors. And then I'm told that every BBC secretary and every producer and every sort of department had at least one secretary working there. They were all automatically got BAFTA membership. And I would go to people and I'd say, oh, I'm, I'm David Wilkinson and... Uh, I've just made this uh, film of um, To the Lighthouse and it's made with the BBC. It's the first of this strange sort of co-production that independent producers are working together. And these women would go, oh, you're very young to do this. It's remarkable, you know, well done and everything. And, oh, it's with the BBC. Good, we're very supportive of the BBC. What did you say the film was? And I'd say To the Lighthouse. And they said, oh, we're going to vote for it. And I said, but you haven't seen it. Oh, never mind, it's a BBC production, we're going to vote for it. So I have to say that when it got nominated, and I've told no one else's story ever, 
Um, I don't think. And I was very cynical. I mean, was it the best single, you know, five, I think there were nominations. Was it the one of the best five single television dramas that year? Did people really think that or did they just vote? Because by the time I got round the five floors, I'd visited an awful lot of secretaries. I don't think I saw anybody else other than secretaries. The thing with awards is I always feel sorry for people when they get very upset because they haven't been nominated for awards. And awards are very subjective. And it's down to, if it's a jury, I've, I've been on the jury of many film festivals and it's always been surprising how political it is. I've, I've often been the chairman as well, so I've had to um, choose between it. And, and I remember one film festival, there was a French judge on it, and she absolutely, very distinguished French film critic, but she refused to vote for any film other than the French one that was in. And this became very difficult. And the rest of the jury were kind of intimidated by her, and she's very elderly. And in the end, I had to come up with a different system. But it eventually meant that two films won, one of which was the French film. And it was a, it was a good film, but it didn't deserve to win. But because of the way that the festival had set up the voting, she was very powerful. And then I'd been at other film festivals where... Um, the jury have voted, this funny enough was in France, and there were seven of us on the jury, and the only non-French people were myself and an Irishman. And they'd chosen a film with Peter O'Toole. And they thought it was a very realistic look of how the British television industry worked. And uh, Vinnie Murphy and I, who were the two judges, we thought it was ridiculous parody and it was nothing like British television worked. And it, we, we had to have a unanimous verdict on any film and they just wouldn't budge and we wouldn't budge. And then finally I had to do a very, well, it's not really underhanded, but I had to point out, so this was in Cherbourg and it was a British and Irish film festival and it was for true independent films. And I said to them, well, I don't understand why this film is in the festival. And they said, why? I said, because if you remember at the start of the film, it has the Universal logo. So it's made by a Hollywood studio. And, and they said, I, we don't remember that. So I said, ring up the organizers. And so we waited for half an hour till the organizers got the 35 mil print and played the beginning, and lo and behold, there was a universal logo at the front. And the one thing a lot of French creatives um, don't like is they hate the dominance of the American studios. So we all voted again for best film, and all seven of us voted for the film that Vinnie and I had wanted in the first place. So that again shows you that it's nothing to do with the actual film, it's to do with politics. And I've had so many friends who have made really very good films and people I've worked with that I've not known that well. And they've got very upset if they, A, they haven't been nominated or B, they haven't won. And they've seen other films that 
that they don't think and other people don't think have been as good. And it's a, it's a strange animal, a film festival. So I've never taken them very easy, I'm afraid. It's probably not an answer you want. And I'm aware that my wife has a lot of awards and I have to be very careful in what I say and she's very good at what she does. But, but from my... Don't be worried. And, and also there's a lot of strange film festivals that are set up purely to take your money. And there, even in this country, there have been some. And the people that vote for them are the people that have set up the film festival. There is no showing to any screening to any member of the public. And uh, it literally, they charge you $100 or something to to be a member of it. And they've structured it in such a way, and this has been written about by various people in blogs, and it's structured in such a way that everybody who enters gets an award. They make up kind of strange categories and things. And then sadly, the, the problem with that is that these filmmakers come to me believing it's a, a, an important film festival like Cannes or Berlin or Toronto, and it's a festival nobody's heard of because there's like three, 4,000 film festivals in the world, and it means nothing. And if you get too many of these um, strange festivals, it, it works against you. Um, so it's, you have to be very, very selective. And I, I think, personally, I think it's disgraceful that people have just come up with a scam to make money. And it's always first-time filmmakers. It's never established filmmakers. They get sucked into it. They believe it's real and that, that shouldn't happen. And that's why, fundamentally, I, I don't have much time uh, for film festival awards. What, what do they mean? I'm a great fan of film festivals. You know, the Galway Film Flower is one of my favourites. Uh, Edinburgh is another. Uh, I'd never miss Galway. And, and an award there means something because it's a, it's a really solid festival you know, that's linked to the Oscars. Uh, so that that you should be proud of. But for these other ones where, where there are no audiences, I would say forget it. Do your research. If you're a filmmaker listening to this and you're going in a film festival, don't fall for the ego uh, of going into a film festival. Do the research. Sage advice. And I hope any young filmmakers or would-be first-time filmmakers out there take that very seriously. So David, if I can take you on a little digression, you've talked about Freeze Green as a fantasist and Edison as a nasty man with good reason, as you've explained. Um, but um, you might know I've been doing some research into an early British filmmaker called Bert Akers. And um, while I'm sure you wouldn't consider Bert Akers the first, um, do you have any um, knowledge of his research? And would you call him an important pioneer in the history of cinema? Uh, he's in my film, he features in the film, uh, and he is very important. And I, um, uh, his, uh, is it Epson Races? Mm -hmm. Yes. The Epson Races, is that not now the oldest piece of film in the world or, you know, continues? I mean, the, the, the Louis Le Prince one is not, it, it's 17 frames really. Uh, that's all that's left. But that one is, it, I can't remember now, but something like the oldest continuous. There's a couple of films that Bert Akers has made, but I'm just going to reference um, IMDb. 
for any of our listeners at home. So he's put himself down as a cinematographer. Well, he's not put himself because he couldn't enter on time. Yeah, he didn't do his own entry. So Andy at BR, thanks for correcting me. But there's Crows on Saffron Hill, Incident at Cloverly College. Cottage, that's, that's believed to be the first film by some people, Incident at Cloverly yeah. Cottage. And there's also Rough Sea at Dover and the Derby 1895. I got the, the BFI, who I got my footage from, that they, the person I was dealing with there, said the Epsom Downs was the first one. So you're right, there's a lot of controversy. And it's difficult. I mean, the, 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 it's always very difficult to date these things. And the reason that I was able to prove with Louis Le Prince, and I hope this doesn't spoil it to anybody who goes on to my website and watches it, um, because I've got such a huge debt on that, so I would love somebody to rent it. Um, but I don't think it gives away, But because the, 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 there's so much in the story that's intriguing. But the, the woman who's in the film, the old round eight garden sequence, you can clearly see her in the 17 frames that it's her from photographs of the time. She died just 10 days later. Incredible. And wow. I, I find her grave. So that's the only way that anybody was able to, to date it. Date. Sure. Is that it's um, because of her death. Had she not died, then yeah. it would have been very difficult. And interestingly, I found her in a graveyard that's full of Kate Middleton, Duchess of Cambridge's ancestors. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. And, and one, of them, one of them lived next door to the house where the world's very first film was made. Oh, I mean, it's, so it's all come full circle. I know, it's sort of strange. And now, you know, her husband is the patron of BAFTA. Hmm. Yeah, wow. I think, but the thing is, that going back to what you said, I think that's probably why the Epsom Derby was um, constantly referenced. Yes. Because that was an event and a specific date. You can date you it, yeah. Hang the hat on, yeah. Absolutely. So that that's the hardest thing that anybody has. It's... You know, because some people say um, the Leeds Bridge sequence was shot. So there's three pieces of film left by Le Prince. Um, and it wasn't film. He shot on paper negative and glass yeah. negative. Then there was no celluloid was invented, was, was wow. launched three That's weeks later after he did his. But, but nobody can say, you can't prove that the Leeds Bridge was shot before or the accordion playing because there's nothing to date those. So historians can only say they were after. And um, I guess, David, you don't have any sympathy for the view that um, Louis Reprince can't be considered the first filmmaker because he didn't work on celluloid. I think that's nonsense. I mean, somebody at the Edinburgh Film Festival where it had its world mm. premiere said that to me. He's not the world's first filmmaker because it wasn't shot on film. And I said, we're here at the Edinburgh International Film Festival. My film is in this, it was shot on digital. I said, I happen to know, because the artistic directors told me, that well over 90%, we didn't know the exact amount, of the films in this festival were all shot digitally. Nobody shoots on film. Film is a messy, um, environmentally unfriendly, costly, awkward medium to shoot on. I said, but we don't call it the Edinburgh International Digital Festival. It's just a name, it's kind of crazy. It's a moving image. Yes, I call myself a filmmaker and, and as a director, I would never ever, ever use film. 
I think Christopher Nolan is a fool for doing it because it's, it's, it's adding considerably to his budget, but he's a brilliant filmmaker. And I can't knock him for doing it, but I don't think it makes a difference. I would agree with you. On behalf of MKH, I think he would object. He's another one of our presenters. The idea of this um, first film, do you think it was uh, a situation where you were always trying to educate people and uncover a mystery? Or do you feel it was like uh, people were just ignoring this? No, I mean, all my films have a theme, and I didn't know this until very recently. It's a sort of subconscious thing. So I produced a number of documentaries, and so documentaries like the first documentary I ever did was in 1992 called London Underground, and I was the main writer of that. And that's on a journey around the underground music scene in London at the time. It was made for a German company who produced a series of albums called London Underground. Then I did James Herrett's Yorkshire, which was based on a book, and I did that. The, the only way that I could make that work in the writing was to go on a journey around Yorkshire. And then I did Cynthia Payne's House of Sin, which she was a, a madam with a brothel, and I went on a journey through her life. Charles Dickens's England, my most unsuccessful film in many ways. The only film I fully scripted, big mistake, my financier and the main person who's a very famous actor who presented it wanted a script. And I wish I hadn't done that. Um, again is a journey. And the, the three films that I've made as a director are a journey. And I, they're all about teaching people things they may not know. You've done a quite a few lectures um, across film schools around the world, including uh, Belgium, Bulgaria, Canada, France, Germany, Russia, Turkey, and the USA, so, and even dear old England. So you've been able to do talks with current and future filmmakers in places like London, Moscow, Cannes, Denver, Istanbul, Ghent, and Vilnius. In all of these settings, what's the question that you kind of hear universally being asked over and again or time and again when you're doing these talks how can i get a job really yeah it's the it's the it's the one thing that they all ask is how can i get a job in the film industry how do i when i leave here because they're predominantly film students how do i do that and my question is is i've partly answered this earlier is do anything you're offered and get to network. I mean, for instance, on the first film, I worked with um, one of the universities, that, uh, or there's a Northern Film School, which is part of one of the universities. There's four separate courses you can have on film in Leeds, extraordinary. And only one of them has ever had me to lecture there and this is a problem I don't, with some film schools. And I asked the person who was running the course, I said, why is it? I said, I've done so many things. I may not have done them well, but I've, I've got a very broad spectrum of, you know, how different things work. And uh, she said to me, David, it's because you know too much. And the, all the people running the film schools are all academics. Not one of them has ever made a film. This was in Leeds. And this is going back 
15 years ago. And she said, they're all academic and they will not want you coming in because it will show up the inadequacies of their course. And that's why people say, why is the London Film School uh, is such a good film school or the, the National Film School at Beaconsfield or the Met Film School? Why are they so good? And it's because they're in London or one slightly out of London, but they can get a lot of professionals to come and do the talks. And I think that's the secret really of any film school. And that's why these film schools around the world have got me to go and talk. And it's often fitted in with a film festival that I'm appearing in. So the, the Moscow Film School was the best one I've ever given. And I was worried because I thought, I'm in Moscow, uh, they don't know me as a filmmaker. I'm not known at all. It just, my, the first film opened um, the documentary section of a very important British film festival there, much to the annoyance of a famous filmmaker friend of mine who was, who was really cross that his film, he, he felt, should have been. I mean, he was half joking, but half serious because his had won you know, lots of awards. Um, so I thought, and they said, well, there's seating for 250 people. So we think that it'll be half full. And to my surprise, 370 turned up and people were standing and wow. sitting. There was a sort of balcony and they were sitting on there. And it was interesting because they were so thirsty. And it's because I was a director, producer, distributor, actor. So I had people from all those disciplines there and writer. I'm, I keep forgetting I'm a screenwriter. Um, and they were so, they were like sponges. They, because they didn't meet that many people from the West and the majority of them were in their late teens and twenties. There were some older people and they just sucked it up. And, um, a couple of those have come over to the UK to study as a result of what I said, um, which I was very surprised at because the Moscow Film School is shit hot. I mean, really, really good. And the facilities they've got there and the Russian films are extraordinary, but they never come over here. Um, and and the, the Moscow, the, the, you know, the drama, I mean, you know, Moscow's where Stanislavski comes from. Um, you know, because Russia's sort of semi-isolated from the rest of the world and sanctions and things. This was organised by the British Council. The British Council are no more in Moscow. Um, but it, that was very interesting because for a lot of them, I was the only Westerner they'd ever spoken to. Although I did have an interpreter, that was difficult. Um, I was amazed at how their... English is brilliant. I can't say a word in Russian. Uh, so yes, and it's but it's always that question of of how do I how do I get involved? That's the the one fundamental, and it's the question everybody asks. Oh, so sorry. Going back, I haven't finished this stream of consciousness talk. So when when we worked on the first film, I worked with the the Northern Film School, and they said we'll allow you to film on our property if because where Louis Le Prince's workshop is, is on their property, is on the grounds of Leeds Beckett University, which in turn owns the Northern Film School. Um, and they said, well, you've got to use some of our students. And it was great because I got four people for nothing. 
because I was had such a little budget, and they learnt so much. And one of them, Oliver Roberts, he lives in Sheffield, and I've, I've it just so happens that two of my other films have been filmed near Sheffield, and I've got a very good sound guy in Sheffield. And Oliver's now worked on three films for me. I, and the only reason I haven't used the others is that uh, one of them is now working for ITN and the other's now working in the music industry. But I would work with them if the opportunities were there. So whether it helped them get other jobs that they'd got a credit on a film, I don't know. But what was very interesting is the apathy of a lot of students. This is, I can tell in talking to a film student whether they're going to succeed or not within 10 minutes. Absolutely. It's never failed. What's the thing that gives it away? Just their attitude to, to, to film. And so many of them are so arrogant. Arrogance can destroy us all. And we've all got it and with all, within all of us. And we have to fight it. I did a, a Stop Brexit documentary and I was filming in a factory called Lush in Poole in Dorset. And I really had so little money. And Don, my cameraman, often did the sound with a one-to-one -one interview. But I thought, well, there's a film school there. And I put out on Facebook, I said, does anybody know anybody at the film school? And somebody came back and said, yes, I do lectures there. There's actually two film schools or two different um, education establishments teaching film. And one of them had a sound department and they had 15 people, 20 people, I can't remember what it was. And I put it out there and I said, look, there's no money, but I will give you lunch. And it's only a morning's work and you get a credit on a film. One person came and he was enthusiastic. And when he got there, he was asking Don all about the camera and he had a sound kit. And we started to do it. And he said to both of us, he said, in front of the person we were interviewing, can you tell me how this works? And I said, what do you mean how it works? He said, well, how does this work? And I said, but you're in the sound department. He said, no, 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 I'm in the camera department. I said, and I, I took the conversation outside. Um, nobody, these 20, 30, 40, 50 people from Bournemouth, on the sound core, however many it was, wanted to do it because there was no money and they couldn't, well, he's not a famous director, was one of the replies. And I thought, what idiot, I mean, this lad was hopeless. I mean, I, I, he, it, I, if he's listening to this, I'm sorry, but you were. Um, the boom, he got the, the levels so wrong that he had to hold the boom way, way away from the person doing the interview. And yeah. the interview was on the radio mic. And luckily, the, 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 I had a radio mic as well. And it really sounds, um, the Tudor who does post-production sound had to really work at that to get rid of this echo. I mean, it was, we, we would have been better off not having a boom at all. Um, and he never mixed it. He never, you know, that's what you do, you mix it. And it was just, it was a disaster. But I thought that sums up so many people who go to film school. They want to come out and they expect to leave and go into a top job. It, it's just that sort of entitlement. And I think if you're gonna get on in this business, you've got to learn. I, I met this guy, Rory, who 
So when I did postcards from the 48%, I only wanted people who voted um, Remain because it was made by Remainers. And it was putting forward why we all felt so passionately about being part of the EU. And I was filming a very important march and I put something out on Facebook and I, I ended up with a crew of 15 people, far too big, but I did have four cameramen. But one of the sound people who came with me, so I had this great guy called Neil Francis who filmed with me, who I use a lot now, uh, if Don's not available or second, uh, second camera to Don. And, and Rory, and they both did it for nothing. I would later pay um, Neil for other work he did, but I continued to pay Rory nothing because he was at the National Film School. So he had a grant and he had money from his parents or whatever. And I was very upfront with all of that. And he was learning and Rory was very clever man. This is why I know he's gonna become one of this country's top sound people. He, whether he was told this at the National Film School or he'd come up himself, but he'd already got credits on lots of films. Rory left um, film school with lots of job offers because he was able to write to all these people and say, I've already done all of this. So they'd click on IMDb and they go to the first film and they could see it had been released in the cinema and they could see it got good reviews. So they, you know, and that's what they like to know that he'd been on good things and they could do it with a, a number of his other films. And this is what I couldn't understand in Bournemouth. So if you've got a choice of going to Bournemouth Film School, whichever one this was that I was dealing with, or the National Film School, go to the National Film School, don't go to Bournemouth because Whatever they're teaching you down there is they're not teaching you to just do everything you can. And that's the secret of it all. The more you do, the more you get. I mean, my wife has four BAFTA awards, an RTS award, an Emmy, and she does really top-rate stuff. But And she's got a really good agent, but she still gets so much work on recommendations of people who she knows or people that will say you, you should see Amy for this or you should see for that. And you, you can never rest on your laurels and things. So knowing as many people as possible is really important. One question I want to ask then is, what do you think is the question that new filmmakers should be asking themselves today? Whether they are not just thinking about going to Bournemouth or um, NFTS, but... What's the question that should be at the front of a new filmmaker's mind right now? When you say new filmmakers, define it. Is it are you talking about director or writer, or are you talking about crew? Or because I, I call talk, them all filmmakers. Okay, I, I would say a filmmaker like who's trying to get into the industry in two thousand and twenty-one. Like what? Or or they've got some short films, but yeah. But as, when you say filmmaker, do you mean a, a, not a, a filmmaker as a sound person, or filmmaker Sorry, as a director, or as a, a direct? As I mean, as a director or a producer. The danger a lot of filmmakers I've worked with make is, it, it, so it's very easy to make a film now. It's very, compared with my days, it's very cheap. They either go and make their first film and it's not ready. The script is not ready. The a whole load of elements are not ready and they make it very cheap. And they think it's great because they've never made anything before. But when you're comparing it to everything else, you can see all the mistakes in it. And that's not going to do them that much good because people will then, particularly if it's been out in the marketplace, 
and it's failed. It becomes, it's so much harder to make your second film is than it's your first film. So a lot of filmmakers very wisely make shorts. And I've got somebody I've championed for the best part of 15 years. And I think this guy is brilliant. I mean, I've known him since before he was a filmmaker. He worked at uh, a film festival and I just instantly talked to him. I thought, you're gonna get on, you, you're talented. Just everything about him, his enthusiasm and, and drive. And he was very humble and, and there wasn't any arrogance to him at all, very polite and things. And he made a short and it won awards. And he made a short, another short and it won awards. And he made another short and it won serious awards. And he now has this very long career as a short filmmaker. And he's now too old. I mean, he must be in his forties. And it becomes very difficult to then, you know, I alluded to earlier starting directing at 57, even as even uh, being a producer for a long time. It becomes very difficult to do things the older you get. People go, well, why have they not done it before? I, they must be crap if they've not done it before. That's So in your 20s, it's far easier to do it. As you progress in your 30s, it becomes harder. And I just don't know if he's ever going to get a film off the ground because people are going to go, well, why has he not done it? And I don't know why he's not done it. I've asked him and he just gets bored. He's developed projects that haven't got made with, with very prominent people and they've just fallen by the wayside. So my advice would be do a few shorts, don't do too many, but also try and work on other people's films because then you're going to meet people. If you, if you have another skill to go and work on their film in some capacity because then you meet the people who can give you the chance. And I am absolute proof of that. I am... I slept, <laughs> I slept with the, the producer who gave me the chance to be the director because I was that producer. So I, it's because I know myself, but you're only gonna get that chance by somebody who's got sufficient clout. So if I'd wanted to be a director at the age of 57 and I had not been a producer or had not been a distributor, I would never have done it. It would not have happened. And it's because as a producer, I had raised a chunk of the finance and I was also putting in some myself that I was able to employ myself and take the risk on myself as director. I didn't want to do it. I did try to get other directors, but you know, one director left it early on because I couldn't pay him what he wanted, which was a lot of money. And he'd never directed anything feature length. He'd done shorts. And then another director I talked to just got too busy with something that wasn't directing. So in the end, I had no alternative. I, ha I had to keep going because we had footage. I mean, I did reshoot a lot of what the first director shot because I didn't like the way he was taking the film, but I'd gone along with it as the producer and presenter, as long as he shot another version, which sometimes he didn't do, the, the version that was in my script. By working on other films and networking, going to every networking event you can get, you're going to have those contacts and you're going to get that relationship. I was watching last night, 
the talented Mr. Ripley. And my wife worked with Anthony Mangella on a TV series called What If It's Raining? And I knew when I went, I saw some of the recording of that. And then I saw, we went to see the first night of a play that Anthony had written called Made in Bangkok. And I knew this was a great storyteller. That's all films are, they're stories. Whether it's a documentary or it's fiction, it's a story. And I thought, I'm, I, this is one of this country's great storytellers. Ironically, he went on to write lots of uh, a TV series with John Hurt for, he for that Jim Henson organization called Storyteller, or The Storyteller, which my children loved. He told me he wanted to be director when I met him at the first night of the place. And what I really want to be is a director and write my own screenplays. But he took his time. He didn't, after the success of What If It's Raining, it was a Channel 4 drama, um, he didn't go back to Channel 4 and say, OK, now I'm going to write you something else, but I want to direct it. He took his time. He did more and more writing jobs where he got more and more credits and really good stuff with good reviews. That he then wrote a script called uh, Truly Madly Deeply, and he'd got sufficient body of work and confidence under his belt to show people that he knew really how to tell stories well. And I think Mark Shivers produced it, I can't remember, who produced What If It's Raining. So there were a number of years went by, four or five years. And the BBC took a risk on him because they could see the body of work. And Truly Madly Deeply was very successful with Alan Rickman and Juliet Stevenson. But it worked because he had been writing the script for a very long time. And he, he, he wasn't in a rush. And the best film I distribute out of the 120 films that I have is a film called Adam and Paul. And I only distributed it in the cinema I, and television. I, I don't have it online rights and I, the right, I don't have the rights anymore. But it, it didn't go very down very well here. But I knew this director when I saw it. I thought this is going to be one of the world's great directors. I thought this was just brilliant. Every other distributor passed on it. I couldn't believe that it came to me. A director called Leonard Abrahamson, Lenny Abrahamson, he, obviously, his fifth film, which was Room, was nominated for an Oscar, and he, his TV series, Normal People, has just got rave reviews everywhere. So I took him around the country promoting it because the actors wouldn't do it, and I take people, I do road shows. This is me, this is my personality, it's, it's what's in my films. I like going around, showing people things. So, and I said to him, why is this brilliant? Why? Why is it? I mean, it's like Samuel Beckett, but just better. Everything about it. And Lenny was 39 when he made the film, and he was a successful commercials uh, director. And he was in no rush. And this is the important thing. When we're all young, we're in a rush. We're in a rush to do this and that and the other. And you just want to make a film quickly. And it's the biggest mistake that every filmmaker I've worked with who hasn't gone on to have a career because they've made an all right film. They've not made a truly brilliant film. They've rushed it. They've been so keen to get it out. I can't remember who came up with the idea. I think it was Mark O'Halloran who wrote the script. Um, and it was described, we described it as a day in the life 
of Laurel and Hardy on smack in Dublin waiting for Godot. Because you can't really describe what it is, but that's what it is. It's got all those elements to it. And uh, one of the reviewers took the piss out of me for having that as the description. And she finished off the, the review and she said, well, what the film is, it's a day in the life of Laurel and Hardy in, on smack in Dublin waiting for Godot. So um, that was nice that she picked up on that. But he said that he, there were 27 drafts of the script that Lenny Abrahamson was eating, drinking, and writing this script for one and a half years. He did nothing else. He was doing it seven days a week. He was obsessed in getting it right. And Lenny would read it and say, yes, that's good, and this, but this isn't, and that works, but this doesn't work. Over and over and over again. He pushed him and pushed him and pushed him. Mark was going mad with all of this. That film, the, the year it opened in London, it won the Leavening Standard Award for Best Screenplay. Now, all 870 films that were shown in British cinemas that year were eligible. This tiny micro-budget film beat major, major productions. That's what a filmmaker needs to do. And the problem is they come out of film school and they want to be directors and producers straight away. And that's where the problem is because they haven't learnt. They, what, they've just had the theory and they've made short films at film school. And there is an enormous difference between a short and a feature, an enormous difference. Just everything about it's different, the structure. If, if they're a producer, they should definitely go and get a job in the development department or something, do something on a offer their services for nothing to begin with then start getting the contacts, then they'll be paid. I don't know with the director, it's hard to say, because I have advised people in the past to be a third assistant director, going up to second or first assistant, but Britain is strange. You can do this in America, uh, you can do it in Germany, you can do it in France. A friend of mine said this, he's an American, and he, he grew up here, and he went to the BBC, and he, wanted to be a cameraman. He's now a successful line producer, but he couldn't get a job at the BBC in the camera department, so he went to be a porter. And he's, because he's an American, Americans start in the mailroom, as many producers I've known, at William Morris or ICM, and they went on to become Oscar-winning producers. You can do that. So Gary thought, Gary Tuck's his name, and he thought, well, I'll go in the mailroom and be a porter at the BBC because then I can transition over. And in his spare time, in his days off, because he had a BBC pass, he used to go to Ealing Studios and he got to know all the camera team and they would let him work on things and he got to know how cameras worked and he got to know them very well. And they said you're not in the camera department, but you're coming over here. What, what are you? What do you do? And he said, I'm a porter in the mailroom, but this is what I want to be. Uh, camp, one of the senior cameramen said to him, he said, look, this is Britain. He said, <laughs> you forget, it's not your America, it's Britain. He said, if you start at the port as a porter at the BBC, he said, 
After 30 years, you'll become head porter. You'll never go to be the camera department. You'll never go on into uh, something else. It just won't happen. And I remember when him telling me that, thinking, I don't think that's true. I think you can. I found it very difficult going from being an actor to being a producer. I had to stop acting, as I said. The BBC thought it was because I was furthering my acting career. It, it was very hard to, to move around. And I do know people who will not employ me as a producer because I know too much um, about how things work. And, and they feel that somehow that could undermine them. I'm not that sort of person who would do that, but that's, they've actually said that to me. So I have said to people, go and be a third assistant and move on. I thought it had all changed. I mean, for fuck's sake, 40 years have gone by. Um, and it has changed because when I was young, the only black actor I knew of was Don Warrington. Don is a very great friend of mine. There was, and there was Rudolph Walker. I didn't know Rudolph Walker and Thomas Baptiste. They were the only black actors in the 70s around. Now there are hundreds. There were no women in so many areas. There were no women in any position of power at any of the broadcasters or any of the film companies. Now, women are better than men. Women are running most things. You know, you'd be very hard to find men in some of these senior jobs. People with disabilities, forget it. There would be no chance. So I had thought that all that had changed, but a couple of people that I'd said be assistant directors, it'll help you be a director, They've said, David, it was bad advice, although they're now very well paid and working on big films and big TV productions. They've never managed to be directors. But most of them have said to me they don't want to be. They've learned that it's not, you know, it's as a director, you've got to hope your last production, whatever it was, was successful. And if you think of some tremendously successful directors from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, they've moved on to do television and not the good high-end television. I think television, my wife will always choose television over films. She thinks that people working films are not as good as people in television because you know she's doing 10 episodes of The Crown with two units on the go all the time. And it's it's just nonstop. It's like you've got 10 different films because you're, you're, you're doing it all simultaneously with all the actors. And a lot of the film people that have only ever done film that go on to those productions can't hack it because it's just full on for a year. Whereas on a film, it's full on for 10 weeks. So really, I don't want to name them, but, but really, really good directors I've either worked with or knew of are ended up doing, I don't want to say second rate and first rate, it's wrong, but not doing the high-end TV work that they should be doing. And it's partly because the industry is ever-evolving and the people that give you the jobs are in their 30s and they don't know that you did a fantastic film with Alan Bates way back in, you know, 19... 80s because they they were children then they're not aware of it so they're going to be aware of other people and those old school directors those old school people of which I I've got one foot in both camps because I run networking events I love running networking events for people getting everybody to meet they won't do networking they 
I have a friend who was once a famous actor, a well-known actor in television. And he said, I just don't get any work anymore. He's in his seventies. And I said, because nobody really knows you. I said, everything you did was a long time ago. I said, you need to go to networking events. He said, no, I let my agent do that. I said, these days you can't rely on your agent for anything. And he said, I refuse to do it. And he said this to me 10, 15 years ago. And he was moaning on to me recently again about it. Um, and I said, but you're your own worst enemy. I said, you wouldn't do it. That's why nobody knows you. Why are they going to give you a job? I said, there's so many. They're going to look in spotlight and they're going to go, who's this guy? That's loosely the story of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where you get an actor who can't understand why he's not getting the roles uh, before, because he's he's kind of stuck in a rut of um, performing and applying for jobs in a certain way. I mean, I, my big mistake, and it is a mistake, is that while Amy's done very well in television, I plodded along in film, never earning very much money. And I was the first ever independent to work with the BBC. I should have continued to work in television, but I took the film route and I developed an awful lot of f films that never got made. And I was based at Pinewood Studios for years and I only socialised with film people. And that's, that was my biggest downfall, is that the films of today are all financed by television one way or another. Because Netflix, Netflix is television. And so there's a lot of film people that straddle both. You know, the really successful producers know how to work the television market. Because again, being Britain, is it doesn't merge a lot at that sort of top level. So although I know very senior people in the film industry, I don't know any of the commissioning editors. And that's a lot of the reason that it's been difficult for me to get my, at that and my age, for me to get my films off the ground because I go to broadcast and they go, who's this guy? Oh, he did all these things at the BBC before I was born. Uh, David, we could stay with you forever, but I feel like we have to wrap this up. But it would be remiss of us not to mention that you yourself were nominated Legacy sadly doesn't work because you get great directors like John Borman and um, uh, Ken Russell that are, are forgotten about. And, you know, poor old Ken Russell, who I thought was a genius director. I mean, he was bonkers at times. I mean, he made, he made so many films at the BBC on film in the 50s and 60s, some brilliant films. But he ended his life going back to making tiny films in his garage, which hardly anybody saw, because he didn't want to stop making it. He loved it so much. And I admired him so much for doing that. A lot of them wouldn't do it. He'd been a big Hollywood director. And he was walking around Cannes trying to get, you know, tiny budget films sold and things. You know, and when he made Women in Love in the UK, it, it changed things. I mean, it was just so extraordinary film. First film to have full frontal male nudity, but a, a major classic novel, which became a classic film. Uh, and The Devils, which was really such a controversial film. And it was just sad that, but I don't think there is such a thing as legacy. I'd like to ask, finally, where can our audiences become the audience for your work? 
would you like to share any platforms or premieres or any way that people can find your projects or take part in them? Sadly, the company who uh, sold my last two films, the first film and postcards from the 48% internationally, uh, called Q Media, they went bankrupt, owing me a lot of money and a lot of other filmmakers. And all the films that were on all the platforms were taken down, and I'm just in the process of putting it up with other platforms. But you can always get them on, if you Google uh, the first film, I think it's firstfilmco.uk, you can find it there. Uh, it's, you know, or Google vi on Vimeo. And uh, Postcards from the 48%, there again is, is, a, is a dedicated website, and you can find a link from there. And Getting Away With Murders will be online very shortly via the dedicated website for the film. And uh, has that website got um, a handle at all? Uh, yeah, they, I always name them. I think this is the, the best thing to do. I, I'm not sure I'm correct, but it, it, so it's called gettingawaywithmurders.net or something, or .uk. But again, if you go Google it, I'm, I think these things come up quite easily. Now, that's the joy of filmmaking today is that you can always get your film out there. If, if everybody else rejects it, and there are always gatekeepers who stand in the way, you can use Vimeo or various other platforms and you can do it yourself. And my advice is, is to go and read lots of books on how to do that because ultimately it can be very rewarding, but it's immensely hard work. And it's how I became a distributor. I had a film called James Herrett's Yorkshire I'd made, it's documentary, and people didn't understand the market. They just didn't get a handle on it. It was based on a book that had sold one and a half million copies. And this was at a time when nobody'd made travel films just for the video market. A couple of people had tried and they'd been a disaster. And WH Smiths, who were the leading outlet for this kind of um, video, uh, they said to me, David, um, you know, we're going to give you an advance order now of 200 units. But if you're very, very lucky, they said, it will sell 5,000 units over seven years. But that's not just with us. That's with HMV and, and with Virgin and everybody else. That's all you'll do in the UK, maximum of 5,000 units. I did it my way. I, I knew how to market it. We sold 9,000 in the first week and 22,000 in the first month. And extraordinarily, WH Smiths, who then had uh, an investment arm to make their own videos, they went off and made a whole load of videos like the Lakeland Poets and uh, Hardy's Wessex, trying to copy my idea. But they didn't understand why mine worked and they lost an awful lot of money and they didn't sell very many copies at all. So if you understand your market and you understand how to get to that market, there is nobody who could sell that film better than you. And Smiths, with all their money, didn't understand why uh, it was a success. So self-help. Self-help is, is often the way for a filmmaker. Fantastic. A final piece of sage advice to take away there. And that brings us to the end of part two of our inspirational interview. Thank you very much once again for joining us, David Wilkinson. Thank you for asking me and I hope that this is of some use. And if it is, and 
somebody learns something it works for them I'd love them to send me an email to, to, to tell me and you can easily get my email on various different googling it so thank you very much so that was our Geek Sweat inspirational interview I've been King Dom I've been joined by TJ ciao for now thank you for talking David it's lovely to hear from you thank you join us again for more Geek Sweat next month Thank you.